From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Hi, friends. If you will listen to me, I will try my best to interest you in what I have to say. My subject is somewhat appealing. We are all prisoners of our conditioning. When this imprisonment produces conflicts that injure our health and happiness, then we must change our personality pattern. You can free yourself from your inner prison, from the fears and defenses that undermine your independence. Personality can be changed. It is changing all the time because we react to life. And life is dynamic. A lot of people grow up with the notion that at some point in your life, you'll reach a destination where you know yourself. You have what you always thought you wanted. The boyfriend, the girlfriend, the car, the job. And then you will have arrived. Real life actually starts. But then you realize that you are just naive and misguided, foolish and immature, to say nothing of dead wrong. The notion of self, of who you are, is always evolving, changing and redefining itself, whether you like it or not. Life is dynamic. Today on ReSound, people who show us their lives in progress. A young man who was born female. A chronically obsessed teen. A former child beauty queen. Just a note here, this entire program deals with a lot of things you'll probably want to talk to your kids about, but maybe you don't want to have that particular conversation right now. Mature themes ahead. Stay with us. Our first story today is called Confessions of a Child Beauty Queen by A.H. Weatherman. And it doesn't really need much by way of introduction, but one of the things I love about it is that its tone is so simple, but its content is so dark and complex. Confession I was a child beauty queen. Something like a second-rate Jean Benet, if she had lived. Some of my titles in the 1970s were Our Little Miss, Miss Cinderella, Miss La Petite, Miss Sunshine, and Miss Charlotte Mecklenburg County. My handicap was the talent competition. My strength was, and no longer is, my picture-perfect looks. I placed first in any special smile competition. Miss Sunshine Smile, for example. I was Miss Photogenic in most pageants, even if I didn't become queen. My pageant career spanned about six years, from age four to age ten. During that time, I amassed over 100 trophies, countless crowns, tiaras, banners, scepters, chiffon dresses, and patent leather shoes. This collection used to be spread out across the attic in the house where I grew up, but my family has since split up and moved and the collection disappeared. I imagine it was slowly eaten by moths, termites, heat, and mildew, eventually suffocating in its own must. Like many ex-beauty queens, including Delta Burke, I am fat. I am not gorgeous, famous, or rich like Delta Burke. But I am fat, and I did live in New Orleans for a while. Maybe it's true what they say about us. 
We're a bunch of overindulged has-beens, sitting on floral sofas, eating bonbons, reminiscing about our moments of glory. Or maybe being fat is related to something else, like being forced to stand in a line of other seven-year-olds in bathing suits, wedge heels, and buttered legs to be scrutinized by a panel of middle-aged judges. Or learning at age five that being a perfect lady means being demure, passive, still, helpful, and always smiling. Or standing disoriented under hot lights on a stage with a hundred other four-year-olds and giant replicas of Cinderella's coach and glass slipper. Or changing clothes backstage in front of countless strangers. Or simply the single trauma of doing somersaults on stage in a red satin bodysuit with white fringe to the tune of all that jazz. Perhaps, too, we ex-beauty queens share some other related experience found in families where mothers turn their daughters into sexual objects at a young age. Whatever the case may be, I can say with certainty that had Jean Benet not been object-raped and murdered in the basement of her own home on Christmas morning, she would be fat in the year 2020, or dead from a heroin overdose, or a sex worker, or a therapist or a writer, but it's unlikely she would have made it out of her house alive anyway. The Miracle Pill My mother drives a Mercedes-Benz. It is her second Mercedes-Benz. Her first Mercedes-Benz was repossessed, as were her Lexus and her BMW. It's not easy to repossess a car from my mother. She senses when someone is coming and she hides her car until it's safe. She's frustrating to collect from. The Mercedes-Benz she drives now won't be repossessed because she bought it with cash and uncontained delight. She felt like a sultan's wife at the Mercedes-Benz dealership when she told them, Money is no object. I'll be paying in cash. This fountain of monetary resources was available to her through a class action lawsuit against a popular diet pill. Taking this diet pill gave her two heart attacks and made her fatter than ever. She had the first heart attack on my brother's birthday, less than one year after my father died of a drug and alcohol-induced heart attack. My mother and her Finn friends, as they call themselves, correspond daily in an AOL chat room. After they got their money, they went on cruises together, traveled to Mexico where you can buy many prescription-only drugs over the counter, and they'll be meeting in Las Vegas this fall. On one of the cruises, my mother's cabin mate died before they were able to set sail. My mother had the room to herself the entire cruise. My mother explains that different ones of them have problems that will never go away. Aside from my mother's heart condition, she also suffers from the drug's neurotoxicity. She proudly tells her children that she has brain damage and that this explains the forgetfulness, the apathy, the contradictory behavior we've seen in her our whole lives. My mother's new Mercedes-Benz is in a color called Merlot. When she says this word, she uses what she imagines might be a French accent. It's the way she says any word when she wants to convey an air of sophistication. 
She says California in this tone as well, for this is the state of movie stars, distance, a thousand miles of faraway coastline, and dreams. Playboy. It was almost exactly one year ago that my mother came from North Carolina to visit me in San Francisco. She spent one month here, blowing through her diet pill settlement faster than you can say, easy come, easy go. I appreciated her visit, but never understood her motives, aside from a general starstruck love of the state of California, until the last night she was here. We were lying in a bed together at her 18th Bay Area Hotel this one a Marriott courtyard by the airport, when she asked me, Have you ever thought that maybe your grandfather touched you? Why, I asked. Well, I know that you and Lily for a while were saying that your dad touched you. I had never said that, but for a long time she had been insisting that dad didn't touch me. That story had changed on this trip. Last week you told me that he got in bed drunk and naked with me sometimes. My mother looked at me like I was silly. Oh, you're not still thinking about that, are you? I don't think he could have done anything. I mean, when he was drunk, he couldn't... You know, I mean, he wouldn't have been able to. I changed the subject. Why are you asking me about Papaw? I mean, that's sort of a strange question. Well, I mean, I was just wondering. I know he liked little girls. Mom, everyone likes little girls. What are you trying to say? Well, I shouldn't have even said anything. You misinterpret things all the time. I just asked because you were always saying you were sexually abused. I never said that but you were always saying that I wasn't. I knew reminding her of this wouldn't have any effect. Well, were you? Do you remember something? I didn't, really, except sitting in his lap in his big red chair on the back porch and him telling me, You know you're my favorite, don't you? And weird things used to happen in that house. Like the time I slept on the cot in the main bedroom and woke up screaming because I thought someone was throwing my legs up and down. And when I used to stay there in summer, I could never sleep because I kept thinking I was hearing screaming babies and animals that no one else could hear. No, but frankly, Mom, I've wondered for a long time if Papa molested you when you were little. No. Why would you think that? She was incredulous. Just some things about you. I mean, I know you went through a hard time with Dad, but it almost seems like there was something before that. The way you forget everything. No, no. The only thing I remember happening was with... Well, there's no need to go into that. I could tell this was another pocket of consciousness that would be closed off for the time being. But Papaw never touched you? Well, no. 
He didn't like me like he liked some of the other girls. I asked her what she meant by that and who she was talking about. Well, he just liked them. He'd have them over. Girls from the neighborhood. I had this one friend, Darla. He really liked her. He liked her more than he liked me. He would want her to come over all the time. And then he liked her sister, too, but her sister was a little older. How old were you and Darla? I really can't remember, honey. Well, what would they do when they came over? Just sit on his lap, mostly. He really just liked to be around them. He liked to look at them. I told you, he liked pretty little girls. My mother was beginning to sound like an overly sophisticated six-year-old, and it was scaring me. Mom, I don't understand what you mean. Well, I remember just thinking. I know some men like Playboy. My daddy just likes little girls. I thought I was going to throw up. But I had to keep her talking. Mom, he must have been molesting those girls. And possibly you, too. She laid her head back down on the pillow. Let's just stop talking about it. There's no use. I didn't even mean to bring it up. Let's just go to sleep. I wasn't going to sleep. I didn't want to upset her, but I knew it was likely to be the last time she ever mentioned it. Is this the first time you've ever talked about this, Mom? Well, there's nothing really to talk about. My daddy just liked little girls, and he had his favorites, and I wasn't one of them. Her voice had returned to its standard resigned lull. She was fading, and my access to the vault quickly coming to an end. Why did you ask me if I thought he ever touched me? I just thought maybe you thought he did, that's all. I was a pretty little girl, after all. Made prettier by my mother's primping and dressing me like a doll and putting makeup on me and putting me in beauty pageants. Do you remember him touching me? No, no, no. Nothing like that. I don't think he did anything. I know he never had intercourse with you. One exclusion. That leaves a lot of other possibilities. I was so angry I wanted to kill her. Right then. But I kept my cool because I knew by morning she would slip back into amnesia and deny ever having said any of it. I had to get the facts. What did he do? I told you. I don't think he ever did anything. He never would have abused you. A man who likes little girls like other men like Playboy would most likely abuse any child he had access to. I felt frustrated and angry like one would be with a child who kept walking out into traffic. No, not abuse. The only thing he would have ever done is pleasure himself. I was nauseous and beginning to panic. I, I don't know what to say. I can't believe it. I feel sick. I didn't mean to upset you, honey. I shouldn't have even brought it up. Let's just try to go to sleep. It was all the detail I could handle. My mom was quickly submitting to the fog of tranquilizer-induced sleep. As she started snoring, I flipped mindlessly through the channels on the TV. 
She can't sleep without the TV on, so I learned to sleep with it during her visit. But I couldn't sleep that night. I cried and cried and cried and cried and knew the significance of this confession. She woke up briefly to offer me a Valium. I refused, but I should have taken it and pocketed the bottle. I would be needing it the next 11 months. Happy Jack When I was seven, I had a friend named Happy Jack who lived on a couch in the woods behind my house. He was not an imaginary friend. He was real. And as I remember it, all the neighborhood kids played with him. I don't know if their parents knew, but mine did because my father was a policeman and knew who he was as soon as he heard his nickname. Jack Parlance, a.k.a. Jackie French, a.k.a. Happy Jack. How do you know him, Daddy? Me and my brother and sister asked, excited to have something to talk to him about. He's an ex-con. I guess he served his time if he's living back there in those woods. Happy Jack's apparent criminal record didn't keep us from playing with him every day, and neither did our parents. He was an old man, older than my father with white hair and long, skinny limbs. I don't think I ever saw him standing, but I could tell he was tall because of how long his bones were. Somehow he had his hair shaped into a crew cut. He always wore the same clothes, polyester gray trousers and a pinstripe button-down shirt. Nobody ever asked him how he got his name, except for maybe some dumb kid sometime. Happy Jack had the biggest smile I've ever seen. So big it looked like it might hurt. It stretched from ear to ear and showed his long abandoned gums. He smiled in winter. He smiled in summer. He probably smiled when it was raining, but we were inside the house and couldn't see him. I thought all old people were crazy or retarded or at least illiterate because of how other adults talked to them, so I didn't expect much more from Happy Jack aside from a permanent grin. I think my parents sort of used him as an adjunct babysitter. Go play with Happy Jack, they'd tell us if we said we were bored or acted like we wanted attention. And we would merrily go into the woods to his couch by the creek because Happy Jack was always happy to see us. You're listening to Confessions of a Child Beauty Queen by A.H. Weatherman. This is ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. What I Won My first title was Our Little Miss Charlotte. A year earlier, I'd been a runner-up in the Miss Cinderella pageant, which was good for my first time in a pageant. Miss Cinderella was held at a high school that year. Many pageants were held at schools on weekends. And I remember the sparse audience in the auditorium chairs, which included my sister Lily, who was a teenager, and her best friend, Julie Cox. Julie had a large bust for 13 and braces, and an expression I referred to then as an upside-down smile. That was the only way I could make sense at four of what I refer to now as a fake smile. For fun, when I'm under pressure at work or in an awkward social situation, I'll say to whoever is around me, Hey, do you want to see my fake smile? 
No one ever says no, and you can't help but laugh when you see it. Laugh and feel sad, especially if you know me. I remember the audience as seen from the stage, and oddly, I remember the stage as seen from the audience. The stage with me on it. Two diagonal lines of tiny girls with their toes pointed toward the center of the stage. I later took pageant lessons, but someone must have told me that day the proper placement of the feet, the right heel cradled in the curve of the left foot, toes at a 45 degree angle. There were about eight girls in my age group. I was second from the left on the end as seen from the audience. I remember being on stage and I remember being in the audience, looking at myself on stage. Maybe I got this memory from a picture of the pageant, which I think exists. Lily says that when they announced my name as fourth runner-up, she and Julie started jumping up and down, climbing over the seats, and screaming so loud that everybody knew who I was after that. My strongest memory of Miss Cinderella is of Lily and Julie cavorting and jumping like monkeys over rows and rows of auditorium seats from a vantage point just behind them. Of course I had to have been on the stage for the announcement of the awards, but my memory of the moment is Lily's. The logo for Our Little Miss was a silhouette of a small girl with an upturned nose and almost exactly equal upturned curl in her hair. She was wearing a crown and aside from that, looked almost exactly like me in the silhouette an artist cut in the mall for a fee. Our Little Miss, like Miss Cinderella, was a national pageant one placed in the top three at the local level, she could move on to the state competition and then the nationals. It meant a lot of traveling around North and South Carolina, and then the world. By the time I was in Our Little Miss, my mother had me in an array of activities with potential. Baton twirling, gymnastics, ballet, and tap. I wouldn't start jazz until I got a little more mature. I was taking ballet at a school of dance run by a former runner-up in the Miss America pageant, so all of the activities were interconnected. My mother planned it that way. After I won at the local level, it was time to move on to the state competition. In my age group, four to six, there was no talent requirement, which was a plus, since I was and have always been talentless, at least in the traditional sense. I already had an awkward relationship with my body. In that way, I was mature for my age. Most girls don't forget how to use their bodies until puberty. In kindergarten PE, my eyes would trace the climbing rope to the place where it connected to the stained ceiling. I just looked at it. I didn't understand what I was supposed to do with it. Same thing with the striped horse hurdles. I'd run up to them full of intention and stop. What was the point? Also, how could I be sure that jumping would propel me over to the other side? I couldn't, so I didn't waste my time. I did waste my time staring at the hurdle once I'd run to it and stopped, but I never wasted my time jumping and falling down. Nobody ever tried to make me. The gym teacher would just tell me to jump the hurdle or climb the rope and leave me alone when I didn't. My memories of me in the track hurdle are of just me in the track hurdle. Nobody else as if I weren't even in gym class. No teacher, no kids. Same thing with the rope. Just me and the long, dirty snake of a rope. 
My picture was in the paper after I won our Little Miss North Carolina. On page B1 of the McDowell County News was a picture of me and a sweet smile in the headline, Daughter of a Former Marionite is Crowned Our Little Miss. I'm sure no one in McDowell County had ever heard of the Our Little Miss pageant, but they all knew my mother. My pageant friends. Many of these girls rode the pageant circuit like I did, so I would see them often. A lot of us also competed in other events like baton twirling, commercial auditions, and gymnastics. Ellie was my best pageant friend, or so our mothers told us. She had blonde ringlets, a powdery china doll face, and a pug nose, at least during beauty pageants and other competitions, which is the only time I really ever saw her. Her mother bragged that Ellie had tried out for a Hardee's commercial and they loved her, but she was too perfect, and they couldn't use her to sell hamburgers and roast beef. My mother uncharacteristically and graciously went along with this lie, so I did too, taking my social cues from her. I have a picture of Ellie from backstage at one of our pageants. It's spooky and surreal how much she looks like a three-foot porcelain doll. I was always a little more flesh, my mother being a summer person, and preferring the bathing beauty look for me. I saw Ellie when I was 13 and out of the pageant world. We were at a Quincy Steakhouse all-you-can-eat buffet. I was in my goth stage and she was apparently in a skin-tight acid wash jeans phase, which was not unusual for Charlotte in 1985. She was still in the life, competing mostly in baton twirling contests for teenagers. Turns out Ellie never got fat, in fact, she's quite trim, with suspiciously curvy proportions for a skinny person. I know because I saw a picture of her in a calendar my mother gave me for Christmas two years ago. It was a calendar of cheerleaders for the Carolina Panthers, Charlotte's NFL team. Ellie is also a honeybee for the Charlotte Hornets, the basketball team. I was surprised to learn she's still living the dream and not jaded like me. I'm sure her mother is quite pleased. I had a friend who lived in the nearby town of Shelby. Her name was Haley Beam. Haley was really country, her mom even less sophisticated than mine. When I first saw Haley, I thought she was the prettiest little thing I'd ever seen. My mother thought differently and told me quickly she'd be no competition for me. To my surprise, I placed ahead of her in every pageant we did together. I never got as close to her as I wanted to. It wasn't that she was standoffish, maybe just shy and not yet at ease in her chiffon and tiara. I imagine Haley is still living in Shelby right now, fat and washing clothes for five or six kids and some lame-ass redneck. My friend Christy also did cheerleading and jazz dancing with me. She wasn't in any commercials. She had exotic long black hair and short bangs. Her mom was an anorexic. All of the other moms talked about her in front of us girls when she and Christy weren't around. They used feigned concern as justification for condescension and gossiping in the way that grown women often do. Not that it wasn't obvious. Christy's mom looked like she weighed less than her eight-year-old daughter. She couldn't grow her hair long like Christy's and all the color had faded from the hair she did have. 
Her eyes were sunken in, and she looked like she was always mimicking a fish. Her arms just sort of hung there, and she slouched. It was gross. The bathroom at Dance Unlimited was right next to the dance floor. We could hear her puking every time she brought Christy to class. All the kids knew something was wrong with her, but we never would have known the word for it had the mothers not told us. I had just thought it was cancer. I'm grateful for having this living, breathing poster child for anorexia so early on in life. It's part of why I'm such a big fat person today. One other pageant friend was Penny. Penny lived in an apartment complex. She had visible bruises. There was a lot of crying and missed competitions. My mother would talk to her mother in hushed tones. Penny had a younger sister who was almost never around. Once my mother sent me over to their apartment to play. It was terrible. They all acted nervous. The father came downstairs and barked at us, and Penny's mother drove me home early. Penny is one of the girls who is probably dead by now. It makes me really sad to think about her. The Mother's Pageant Almost every pageant included activities for the mothers as part of the overall cost. These activities were usually a welcome breakfast, an evening cocktail hour, and what was known as the Mother's Pageant. It was a tradition, although I don't know how it started. The Mother's Pageant was usually the first night we were all there. The moms would all get dressed up as ugly as they could, like it was Halloween. They would color their hair green, black out a tooth with grease pencil, put their hair in curlers, and dress in their homeliest house coat or pajamas. Sometimes they went too far. One year, one lady put Vaseline in her hair to make it look greasy. She didn't know you couldn't wash Vaseline out that easy. It was a big crisis. All the moms wanted to show how ugly they could be, but only on Ugly Mother's Night. Confessions of a Child Beauty Queen by A.H. Weatherman. A.H. Weatherman wrote this essay in a little self-published zine, and that zine was found by Resound producer Roman Mars on the shelf of Modern Times, a bookstore in San Francisco. After reading it, he knew he wanted to get her story on tape for his own radio show called Invisible Ink. But then we stole Roman and all his great ideas and brought them to Resound. Lucky us. I'm Gwen Maxi, and you're listening to ReSound. And while you're listening, if you hear something that catches your ear, let us know. Send us any comments or questions you have to ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Hi, friends. If you will listen to me, I will try my best to interest you in what I have to say. My subject is somewhat appealing. Oh, parents, I wish to enchant. I want to beg you 
one and all, to lead the church in the king. One, two, three, that's the speed of the sea. A, B, C, that's the speed of the D. You can dream a little dream, and you can live a little dream. I'd rather live it. The dream is always cheap, but never get it. One, two, three, that's the speed of the sea. A, B, C, that's the speed of the D. You can dream a little dream, and you can live a little dream. I'd rather live it. The dream is always cheap, but never get it. You'll give the church in a chance. Now, if you want them to be wise little children and don't want them to frolic and dance, then stop. Stop laying bad examples, and I bet your children will have a chance. I'm Gwen Maxi. You're listening to ReSound. We have come to a time where men recognize the effects of the brain on the physical body. There's probably no time when our identity is more in flux than when we're teenagers. Just ask one of them, or their parents. That's what our next two stories are about. Maya Tavares was born female, and then spent the next 20 years defining what it was to be male. His story was produced by Richie Duchamp. It's called Maya, Me, Mine. I went for about a year without having a name at all. Um... People didn't know what to call me. Sometimes I would give them the name that I was toying with that week. I'm transgender. I was born female. Um, I've been identifying as male since I was 17 years old. And I think that my journey as a transgender person started (laughs) when I started. When I was in the sixth grade, I think, was the first time somebody said to me, you weren't always a girl, were you? Like, you probably had, like, some sex change or something, right? Trying to make fun of me. And it wasn't until I, you know, I came out as trans that I started to think about that that conversation and be like, you know what? He was an ass, but he was right. had a series of pivotal moments when I was about 17 years old. I just shaved my head for the first time and I started being perceived as male without even trying. People just saw me as a 12-year-old boy. You know, hey sport, hey tiger, hey slugger, you know, and you don't really say that to a 17-year-old girl, you know, so I, I, I knew that I knew that people were reading my gender presentation as male and I was a lot more comfortable with that than I thought I was going to be. I was thrown right into it with my parents um, because I told my brother, who's two and a half years younger than me, and, you know, we were out riding four-wheelers in a friend's field, and he noticed that I was binding my chest and that I looked a lot like a guy, and he was like, what are you doing? You know, like, doesn't that hurt? Yeah, it does, but it's what makes me feel good, and I really think that um, that I'm transgender. He was like, oh, cool. <laughs> Race you. I don't even remember him asking any questions. And so we were we were up in his room that night, and my dad came up to tell us that dinner was ready. And my brother was like, "Hey, Dad, have you met my brother?" And I went, "Oh shit!" And my dad was like, mm, "Can't say that I have." <laughs> and so, you know, my brother introduced me to my father as his son. 
and he was just like, I don't understand why, you know, this is such a big deal for you. You know, like you have breasts, you should just, you know, be comfortable with them. And he didn't, he didn't really get it. And so that was the majority of where I did education with my dad was around, well, okay, it feels better for me inside to be in pain on the outside because I'm going to hurt no matter what. I think that he started to get it after that. My mom and I just never really talked much. And so when I came out as transgender, I think that it really scared her. And she cried a lot. And I said, what? why are you crying? She says, you need to understand that I'm dealing with the death of my daughter. And I said, well... Maybe you should try not to look at it as the death of your daughter, but as getting to know the child that you raised. There was a good grieving period, but after that, I think our relationship really improved. When I was 15 years old, uh, I ended up in an abusive relationship with a guy who was five years older than me. And so I really had to come to grips with what is it like to become the thing that you're the most afraid of. I thought, okay, well, I can be a boy, but I don't want to be a man. They're different. You know, boys never hurt me. I had to go through a journey of finding guys in my life that I really admired and that I really wanted to be like. Someone who could express emotion, even when the society says that guys can't do that. Someone who is revolutionary and redefines male just like I was. I decided that I wanted chest surgery right off. Um, And then I went and I actually saw what the surgery looked like, and I was like, Oh my God. And I really had to come to terms with scarring because as I become more visibly male, it makes me feel good to have those kind of markers on my body. You know, like they, they let us know where we've been. I was 19 when I had chest surgery. I had been so afraid to go into surgery and just have a part of myself cut away and just thrown away. I wanted a way to celebrate its passing. My chest surgery was on November 24th. So November 21st, (laughs) we all went to Higgins Beach in South Portland. And um, the waves were just so beautiful that night. And a friend of mine was standing with me. And the next thing we know, we're throwing off all our clothes and running into the ocean in our underwear. I turned around and two more of my friends are running into the water. So there's four trans people with so much history of body hatred and issues and pain running in their underwear in the waves and just taking a moment and existing and not caring what the outside looks like. And that's where I said goodbye. So by the time I went to Canada for my surgery, it was just a formality. Testosterone took a lot longer. 
it scared me to think that there would be something in my body that would fundamentally change who I was. On May 31st of 2003, I had my first injection of testosterone. And that night, my voice started to itch and feel funny, and it started to drop on one shot, of, like within hours of it happening. And it was just amazing because your voice communicates who you are to so many people. It's so much a part of our identity. About a month ago, we went to see a play, and um, my mom went to get tickets, and my dad and I had to use a restroom. So we both ended up running into the guy's room, and that was the first time that my dad and I had ever been in a in a restroom together. And he's like, you know, I don't think many fathers in the world can say how happy and privileged they are to be able to share a restroom with their son, you know, and just clap me on the back. And that was it. And it was, it was really, really sweet. Sometimes I would have to say my name. And for that whole year that I had to say it, it just felt like a lie coming out of my mouth. I would stand there and I would look in the mirror and I would say different names. But all I really wanted to be was myself. And I wanted something that was close to my birth name that honored my mom's choice, but also something that was me. And it just clicked with me and I found the name Maya. And then I realized Maya, me, mine, about claiming this life and claiming who I am and having that be it, you know, having me just be me. Maya Me Mine was produced by Richie Duchamp at the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies in Portland, Maine. I'm Gwen Maxi. You're listening to ReSound. Listening is a primary communication tool. Listening is a learned behavior. It's an acquirement, not a gift. We're not born with the skill. Listening is a personal, human obligation. Listening is essential to our personal, professional, social, and family success. We're all obsessed about something. Some of us, many things. Some of us, when we were teenagers, many, many, many things. Catalina Puente is a sophomore in high school, and in her story, she lets us in on an obsession that almost ruined her life. A note, this story does contain some mild sexual imagery. I've loved Sam Horgan since I was 13. I'm 16 now. He's an actor. Hey, Betty Crocker. He started out as a child star. He was in this movie, Break. I watched it over and over and over. I could spend up to a whole day thinking about him, but normally it's about four hours or so. Every time I go to the internet, I look up things about him. I go into websites to see what girls have to say about Sam. I'm writing back to a few stupid girls that write about Sam. I wrote to this girl. 
and she wrote, When I was 14, I got really drunk at Sam Horgan's apartment and made out with him. Whoa. And then I wrote, That is the most stupidest lie I've heard since the lie about the world's going to end. And if it's true, I hope your tongue boils and burns into ashes. I am Sam Numero Uno's fan, okay? Now, if I have to go all the way where you live to cut your head off for making such a big lie like that, I would. Then some other girl wrote after me, and she wrote, Dude, chill. No need to threaten anybody. Sam is cool, but no need to get all freaky. My school hallways are always crowded and loud. When I go up and down the stairs, I always bump into someone I know and say hi and bye. When I arrived at my high school as a freshman a year and a half ago, I had no idea what was waiting for me there. I was going down the stairs when someone was coming up, and I got such a surprise because that person looked just like Sam. The eyebrows, white skin, black hair, same nose, eyes, lips, and the same strong jaw. That's what scared me the most. I went, oh my God. But it wasn't Sam. It was just a regular student. It wasn't even a boy. At the beginning, it just started with the feeling of how shocked I was that she looked like Sam. I guess I was too shocked to think I liked her. Before I knew her name, I'd think about her at home, calling her the Sam girl. Later on, I found out her real name, but I'm only going to use the nickname that I gave her, which is Kaylicious, like the gum, Bubblicious. Now, I have the letter K on my right thigh. I made it by rubbing my skin off with a toothpick. My older sister, Maria, thought what I did was crazy. My sister's 23, like Sam. The three most important people in my life are my sister, Sam, and God. My sister was the main witness to my obsession. It's plain to me how I used to be obsessed with this girl. Oh, my God. <laughs> Everything would remind me of her, even if it... It had nothing to do with her. You would find something and say, oh, look, she wear this color. Oh, look, she was wearing these boots. It's ridiculous how, how your friend gave you a gum. She gave you a gum that belonged to her, and you look, you still have it. You have it there, like. <laughs> and, oh, my God, what was that smell? What was that smell? That was her perfume. I know it. I know it. I'm going to buy it. She was the first girl I had different feelings for, like strong love feelings. When I heard any love song, especially My Immortal, by Evanescence. I think about her. That song makes me so sad. It reminds me of the things we could have done if we were together. I'm so tired of being here Suppressed by all my childish fears I just imagine the lights off, us in the bed, Nose to nose, fingertips to fingertips, not saying a word except some I love yous. Play with each other's hair, breathing each other's body scent. We're both happy. These wounds won't seem to heal. This pain is just too real. There's just too much that time cannot I wanted to marry the darn girl. I wanted to live with her. I wanted to spend the rest of my sorry life with her. I wanted to die with her. I wanted to be in heaven with her. Until Kaylicious, the only crushes I had for women were women on TV. I came out to my parents over her. My mom said she didn't care and that she still loved me. 
I only told my dad when I was asking my family about my obsession. I was scared that he'd see me differently, be disgusted, or end the conversation. The day after I told him, we talked about it again. Something that I told you that was important. What was that? Yes, that you used to like boys and girls. Yeah, and now. And now, too, and you asked me how I felt about it. And I said that it happens to a lot of people. How do you feel that I told you that? Do you feel different than last night? I feel good, happy because you have trust in me to tell your dad everything. And I am happy with you. It's easier to show your feelings to a boy because that's how society is. For a guy and a girl to be together. I mean, a guy can't freak out when a girl tells you she likes you. I heard a rumor that some girl found out that I liked her and was going to curse me out in front of the whole school. I assumed Kalisha saw the desk that I wrote her name on. I wrote that she was hot. And I thought she figured out about me crushing on her. I was scared and talked to a school counselor who arranged the meeting with the two of us. I was so terrified. I thought I was going to pee in my pants. She came in and I asked her if she heard anything bad about me. She looked clueless and also beautiful. After a few seconds, she said, No, but if I did, I wouldn't remember. I don't believe in he said, she said rumors. Then I said, Good, but if you hear anything bad about me, it's not true. When I talked to her, my heart beat fast. Like boom, 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 boom. The obsession was like a second person. It felt like I was responsible for two people. My regular self and my obsessive self. In my house, I was unhappy most of the time. But depression was the new feeling. I was sad for myself that I felt this way over a girl who didn't even notice me. I would pray to God almost every night, telling him to send me a sign. That if I wasn't going to get with her, to make me stop liking her. But if I was, to let me keep going. My sister was getting annoyed. After I figured out that, yeah, we're never going to get together and this was going nowhere, I just wanted you to shut up about her and to move on and leave her alone because you guys were never going to be together. I started losing concentration in school, even though Kalicious and I had no classes together. My report cards were disgusting. The feelings were so strong, it started to hurt. I used to cry in the bathroom because it was the only door with a lock. <sighs> I remember those mean days. I wrote poems and haikus to clear up my mind. I feel like I'm trapped. Trapped as the walls around me. I want to get out. Maria told me, don't tell me anything if you don't got her number or have not done anything with her. So what I used to do was while I was in school, I used to think of a good lie to tell my sister so she could be interested in my talking about Kalicious, because I had no one else to express myself to. Almost every day I would come home with a story. I felt scared to tell Maria about the lies because she might lose trust in me. I decided to confess. Do you remember when I used to come from, um, from school and I used to tell you stuff like what happened to me today? Yeah. Can you tell me like one of the like, stories that you remember? Oh, um, today, guess what happened to me? 
I don't have my ID. I told Maria that Kaylee stole my high school ID. And um, she said, oh, if you want it back, you better come to school because you never come to school. So I can't wait to go back tomorrow. She's going to give me back my ID. Oh, my God. <laughs> She's holding it. She put it in her back butt pocket. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, what was... When she give it back to me, it's going to be from her pocket. Oh, my God. We're the stupidest <laughs> sisters in the world. Are you in a good mood? Why? I just want to know. I'm always in a good mood. I need to tell you something. What you did? Something I need to confess to you. You have another story. No. Like half of them that I said. Were fake. How you came up with that? I don't know. Yeah. Why? Because you started saying... I don't want to hear if it's nothing good, so why I had nobody else to express myself to. <laughs> so I used to like if I could talk to you. You're an idiot. <laughs> Ew, that's sick, yo. <laughs> I know. Why would you do something like that? I'm not mad, but I'm just saying that's so weird. Why, why you did that? You didn't have to. I was surprised Maria didn't think it was such a big deal. I think why she didn't get mad with my confession was because she probably thought it was more stupid. Every time we had a school break, I'd think about how to slow down my obsession. Winter break was so depressing because I didn't see her, but then I started thinking about her less. But when I got back to school, it all fell on top of me again. Finally, the summer came, and there was a rumor that she might move, so I might never see her again. I decided to end the obsession. I felt like an old lady whose husband just died after 50 years together. I tried not thinking about her, and I punished myself a little by not giving myself pleasure, like listening to songs and reading things that would remind me of her. Sam helped me a lot, too. <laughs> I would watch Sam all the time. Like I kept watching the episode of the sitcom, Still Standing, that Sam starred in. Because he's a butler, dude. He tells anything he talks to. He's a designated driver. He goes on burger runs. He does our homework. Babysits my son. Well, buddy. Even though Kalicious looks like him, it was a whole different kind of love than what I had for Sam. Plus, it's sadder with her because I know I'm not going to get with Sam. I missed Kalicious. But by the end of the summer, my obsession was leaving. On the bus on the first day back, I was nervous that if she was there, I might fall in love with her again. When I got to school, I saw her, but I didn't react like I thought I would. I like your paper, but it's a bit ambiguous. I have classes with her now. Unlike before when I just wished I did. I get uptight for the first 10 minutes, but then I just relax and forget that she's in the class. If that was me last year, I don't know what I would do. I know I wouldn't be relaxed. Maria asked me if I was completely over Keylicious. I stood speechless for a while. I wanted to say that the obsession was gone, but I decided to answer as honest as I could because I didn't want Maria to doubt what I was saying. I have to admit that I am... 99% over her. But like, there's like 1% that I still honor. It's scary because I don't want to think about her, but sometimes I just do. 
I still like Kalicious, but not so, so in love. I have a piece of love in my heart that my heart won't let me erase. Until I have a real relationship, maybe I'm not going to be completely over her. For WNYC, I'm rookie reporter Catalina Puente, a.k.a. Mrs. Sam Horrigan. Obsession was produced by Serena Patel and Miguel Macias with rookie reporter Catalina Puente, engineered by Wayne Schulmeister. The story is out of WNYC's Radio Rookies, a program that teaches teenagers how to create radio documentaries. The program, by the way, just won the 2006 George Foster Peabody Award. You can learn more about Radio Rookies at radiorookies.org. I'm Gwen Maxi. You're listening to Resound. We are all prisoners of our conditioning. When this imprisonment produces conflict that injure our health and happiness, then we must change our personality pattern. You can free yourself from your inner prison, from the fears and defenses that undermine your independence. Personality can be changed. It is changing all the time because we react to life. And life is dynamic. Sound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Roman Mars and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world. Generous support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else, unless you live everywhere else.